This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith who are organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Welcome back, comrades. This is Heart of Heartless World, where we scavenge the wasteland of religion and modernity to find signs of life and hope for those whose faith demands that justice and mercy and solidarity are prerequisites for living faithfully in the world. And tonight, after a substantial hiatus, sorry about that, we are back with the recording from an event orchestrated, I might add, masterfully by my co-host Nicole Ann from last month surrounding the startling energy behind the Hindu nationalist movement in India and beyond. It is a religious fervor that echoes the far-right Christian nationalism that is sadly a mainstream reality here in the States. It was an important event, and we will jump directly into that right after I briefly announce that this podcast, Heart of a Heartless World, is joining a smattering of other progressive religious podcasts at an in-person event coming up on October 19th to the 21st in Springfield, Missouri. It's called Theology Beer Camp. It's three days of live podcasting, craft beverages, and lectures from leading scholars in religion like York Rieger, Grace Jesu Kim, John Dominique Crossan, Reggie Williams, Roberto Che Espinoza, and many others. And get this, if you use the code HEARTGODPOD, that's, you know, HEART and then GODPOD, one word, HEARTGODPOD, you get $25 off and you help support our podcast here at Heart of a Heartless World. It's going to be a blast, so we really hope to see you there. Check it out at theologybeer.camp. All right, without further ado, here is Nicole Ann leading a conversation around Hindu nationalism. So our intention for this event was to have an informed conversation and a skills building session to discuss the rising threat of Hindu nationalism in India, why it is urgent for progressives in the U.S. to know what's happening and how to spot and challenge appearances of Hindu nationalism in the United States today. So in order to do this, we wanted to reach out to two incredible organizations doing some of the most important um, and difficult work on these topics, Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus and Hindus for Human Rights. Joining us from Hindus for Human Rights and Sadhana are Haritha Ishwara and Giovanni Parikh. Haritha will begin by giving us an introduction to just what Hindutva is, its impacts in domestic politics, and what organizations like Sadhana and Hindus for Human Rights are doing to fight it. Hindus for Human Rights is a US-based 501c3 nonprofit advocacy group, which advocates for pluralism, civil and human rights in South Asia and North America. They provide a Hindu voice of total resistance to caste, Hindutva, Hindu nationalism, racism, and all forms of bigotry and oppression. They fight against the persecution of people of all faiths all over the world, and do some amazing advocacy work, including government briefings, peaceful protests, publishing op-eds, running and participating in webinars, conferences, and having a robust social media presence. Haritha is the Communications and Outreach Coordinator at Hindus for Human Rights. She is a current master's candidate at George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs, where she studies media and strategic political communication. She helps build progressive grassroots power with rising organizers, 
a DC-based org working to train new and emerging leaders in community organizing. And she is passionate about transnational movements for justice, democracy, and media, the demilitarization of peacebuilding efforts and human rights. So without further ado, let us begin. Great. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being in attendance today. I'm really excited to talk to you all. I am based in D.C. Um, and yes, as Nicole said, I'm the communications and outreach coordinator for Kennedy Street Human Rights. So I thought, bear with me, there's a lot. I thought I would get into a little bit of like just the basics of what Hindutva or Hindu nationalism is and then kind of talk through what that looks like in the U.S. today and the connections between the Hindu right-wing right -wing movement and the U.S.'s own right-wing movement. So um, as a primer, Hindutva, also ca called Hindu nationalism, is a right-wing political ideology that guides the current ruling party in India, the BJP under Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Sometimes people say that Hindutva simply means Hinduness um, and that it is synonymous with Hinduism or a stronger identification with Hinduism, but we reject that and we do not think that Hindu Hindutva is the same as Hinduism. At Hindus for Human Rights, this is one of our core tenets because we believe that the practice and tradition of Hinduism has been, has been and, and is continuously and is being exploited for violent ethno-nationalist means, and we strongly reject how our faith is being usurped and used to do harm to minoritized communities in India and in the diaspora, and Shivani will definitely touch on that a little bit later. Hindutva is a modern political ideology that originated in the early 20th century, inspired by Nazi Germany and Mussolini's party. V.D. Savarkar, the originator of the term Hindutva, assigned, quote, criteria for Indian identity based on citizenship, common ancestry, common culture, and regard for India as a fatherland and sacred land. For Savarkar, this excluded Christians and Muslims and others from minority communities from the definition of who could be Indian. So today, in regards to nationalism, both Hindutva and the conservative right-wing movements in the U.S. emphasize nationalism as a core value. They promote a strong sense of national identity, often associated with traditional cultural and religious values. And both of these groups tend to prioritize the interests of their respective nations and advocate for policies that protect national sovereignty and security. However, there is a difference in the basis of this nationalism, although you could argue that there is a little bit of a similarity. In India's Hindutva, nationalism is often closely tied to a specific religious identity, Hinduism, which is considered and constructed in an essentialist model as the cultural foundation of the nation versus a project at the independence, at the movement of or moment of independence in the 1940s that promoted an ideal of a pluralist India with a communal harmony as the patriotic, patriotic ideal. So Hindutva kind of came out in opposition to that pluralistic. Uh, secular democratic movement and basis for what India could be and promoted a staunchly Hindu, very identitarian vision for what the country should be. Um, yeah, as, as a patriotic ideal, as I was saying, and one that could be viewed as beating back the division sowed by the departing colonial power. So came out of this colonial movement or anti-colonial movement in trying to assert a Hinduness of the country when in reality it was meant to be a secular democratic state. In contrast, conservative right-wing movements in the U.S. typically associate nationalism with American exceptionalism, emphasizing values such as individual liberty, limited government, free market capitalism, and they have a growing anchor in white nationalism that similarly builds a new narrative. Here, it can't be of indigeneity in India. 
it does turn tend to be um, of indigeneity, claiming that Hindus are like the indigenous people. Hinduism is an indigenous religion to India. So yeah, so that American exceptionalism needs to take the place of an originary myth. Um, in some ways, Hindutva resembles right-wing nationalist movements around the world advocating for economic protectionism and increased border security. Its distinguishing factor, though, is its core belief that India's national identity should be synonymous with a Hindu identity. And this is the part that's similar to how the right-wing in the U.S. roots its identity politics in evangelical Christianity, although there is a separation of church and state. Especially right now, we see the influences of a deeply conservative reading of Christianity influencing our political and judicial institutions institutions. And this doesn't appear to be a solely American phenomenon, especially if we look to Bolsonaro's Brazil or Bonds or, or Bonds Hungary. In terms of religious fundamentalism, it plays a significant role in the ideologies of both Hindutva, Hindu nationalism, and conservative evangelical right-wing movements in the U.S. Hindutva espouses a Hindu nationalist agenda seeking to protect and promote Hindu cultures and traditions. This can sometimes lead to the marginalization not even sometimes, often leads to the marginalization of religious minorities and a push for policies aligned with Hindu religious practices. You can even see some similarities in the U.S. with like the great replacement theory and things like that. That's being used a lot in India as well, saying that, oh, like Hindus will be replaced by Muslims and other minorities, um, other religious minority groups, um, just as in the U.S. conservatives are spreading this myth that white people will become a minority in the, in the country. In the U.S., obviously, conservative right-wing movements often have a strong affiliation with evangelical Christianity. They advocate for policies that align with conservative traditional Christian values, um, such as the abortion, uh, such as the opposition to abortion rights, support for traditional family structures, and resistance to LGBTQ plus rights. However, it's important to note that the religious dynamics and historical context in India and the U.S. differ a little bit. In regards to immigration, while both Hindutva and conservative right-wing movements in the U.S. have concerns about immigration, their motivations and approaches kind of diverge here. In India, the Hindutva movement is often critical of illegal immigration from neighboring countries, particularly Bangladesh, and it promotes a Hindu-majority identity. So with um, things like the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, and the National Registry of Citizens, those things in the beginning of 2020 or end of 2019, beginning of 2020, caused a lot of uproar because of the exclusion of Muslims from these laws that would have granted people citizenship um, and lots more as well. So because of this, it can lead to a lot of tensions with religious and ethnic minorities. In the U.S., conservative right-wing movements express concerns about both legal and illegal immigration. They tend to focus on issues like border security, economic impacts to immigration, and the preservation of cultural and linguistic norms. However, it is worth noting that immigration in the U.S. is obviously much more complex and multifaceted due to the country's history as a nation of immigrants. Um, and that's something that you don't see as much as in India, especially with the indigeneity uh, notion of Hinduism and Hindutva as well. So now moving on to how this is kind of playing out in the U.S. and the ties of Hindutva groups and the nationalist politicians and organizations in the U.S., there are various groups that are softly and sometimes outrightly peddling Hindutva in the U.S., including the HSS or the Hindu Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the American counterpart of the Indian militant group, the RSS, um, the Vishva Hindu Parishad of America, the VHPA, Coalition of Hindus of North America, Hindu America Foundation, Hindu Students Council. All these organizations are linked together in uh, peddling Hindu politics in the U.S. Elected officials like Tulsi Gabbard, Raja Krishnamurthy, and now many state, city, and local officials have either been directly involved 
uh, or indirectly involved in this covert movement to inject Hindutva politics into the U.S. in both domestic and foreign politics. Events like the Haudi Modi rally in 2019, the World Hindu Congress, and other events have drawn out Hindu nationalists and given them large platforms to perpetuate their hatred. Uh, currently, in our fight to ban caste discrimination in California and Seattle, that one we just recently won, we're working on California right now, some of these groups are coming out to spread the notion that these bills trying to ban caste discrimination are Hindu-phobic or anti-Hindu, which is a phenomenon of targeted hate and discrimination against Hindus that they claim is a global, you know, like systemic phenomenon. And this is part of like a new strategy that Hindu nationalists use to shut down discussion of caste or other criticisms of India, the government or Hinduism itself. They are pulling from the playbook that many people use in regards to criticism of what the Israeli government does in the occupied territories of Palestine. And Hindu nationalists claim that any criticism of India is Hindu phobic or anti-Hindu similarly to how people claim that criticism of the Israeli government's actions in the occupied territories is anti-Semitic. And Hindutva is also creeping into politics with groups like the Overseas Friends of the BJP, the Republican Hindu Coalition, which, by the way, appointed Steve Bannon as an honorary co-chair of the coalition uh, a few years ago. And these groups are funneling money and exposure into both Republican and Democratic politics. For example, in my home state of Maryland, the lieutenant governor, uh, Aruna Miller, has been accused of taking money from these right-wing groups and these prominent leaders within these right-wing groups. And people have come to her aid saying that there's nothing wrong with it or that it's not, you know, a relevant topic to discuss. But there's a lot more where that comes from. It's a lot, you know, deep, more deep-seated under the surface. And I'd say lastly, I leave you with why it's important for us to be anti-Hindutva um, or anti-Hindu nationalists. There's a lot more we can discuss, obviously, if people have questions and thoughts, especially about the connections between Hindutva and white supremacy, Christian nationalism, caste discrimination, so much more. But alongside anti-racism, anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, all the other things that we stand for, our coalition, I think, of left and progressive spaces needs to be educated on forces like Hindutva that are creeping into American politics. And it's important for us to take a principled stand against Hindutva, just as we do the Christo-fascist forces in the U.S., and acknowledge and fight against the dangerous rise of fascism around the globe. The, the most, I guess, up, upcoming things that, that's happening is Biden has invited Modi for a state dinner in July, and members of Congress are trying to invite him for a joint session of Congress. So my most immediate call of action, if you are interested or if you want to join this in any join this fight in any way, is to call into Senator Schumer's office to demand that he not invite Modi to a set, joint session of Congress or support the House's call to do so as Ro Khanna um, and Kevin McCarthy are trying to work on inviting him to a joint session of Congress, which we think is kind of a bad thing. We shouldn't be platforming authoritarian leaders. So um, that's all that I have. Sorry, that was a lot. So please, we can break it down and answer any questions afterwards, but I'll pass it on to Shivani now. Shivani will speak to us about her Hindu faith and how its principles inform her commitment to socialism and racial justice work, and the foundation that interfaith work particularly serves in South Asian community organizing and coalition building. Shivani Parikh is a rising 3L Stein Scholar for Public Interest Law and Ethics at Fordham Law School and a board member of Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus. She is committed to trauma-informed movement community lawyering that expands immigrants' rights curtails the war on terror surveillance project and provides legal support for our marginalized and disenfranchised Desi families who are building power. 
Then Shivani will speak to us about her Hindu faith and how its principles inform her commitment to socialism and racial justice work and the foundation that interfaith work particularly serves in South Asian community organizing and coalition building. Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus was founded in 2011 and the movement aims to empower Hindu American communities to live out the values of their faith through service, community transformation, and targeted advocacy work. Sadhana has mobilized Hindus in New York City and beyond to stand up for causes including environmental justice, racial and economic justice, gender equity, immigrant rights, and anti-casteism. Sadhana brings a Hindu voice to the interfaith justice movement with chapters and members around the country and abroad. They also engage and mobilize progressive Hindus nationally and internationally using social media. Hi everyone, I'm Shivani Parikh, she, her, hers. And yes, I'm um, one of our, uh, one of the 10 board members of Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus. I see one of our co-founders in the audience. So shout out to Aminta, who is representing from the city today. And so I wanted to touch on a few different things. First, I would love to just also highlight the relationship between Sadhana and Hindus for Human Rights. So Sadhana was founded in 2011. I had the opportunity to join the board in 2021. Um, and Hindus for Human Rights was very much so demonstrated as a necessity because Sadhana was often getting called to respond to a lot of the foreign policy concerns that naturally come out of the U.S.'s relationship in propagating um, Hindutva and then, you know, Hindutva's growing presence in the United States. And we have primarily focused on interfaith coalition building, um, building bridges amongst the various uh, Hindu communities that exist um, both in New York City and beyond um, throughout the country. And then more importantly, uh, just really being an affirmative uh, voice for Hindu values, um, especially as one of our greater concerns, to Haritha's point, is the theocratic element that has infiltrated the way that we talk about um, the rise of like fascism here domestically um, and what it means as an implication for the erasure of thermic tradition. So not only Hinduism, but also Jainism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and other and other minority faith groups, um, which are not a part of the perhaps the Abrahamic traditions. The thing that I really wanted to share in terms of faith for me is because I think one of the challenges that many of us from uh, faith groups, you know, whether regardless of the faith that you're born into come up against is how a lot of our institutions, whether I mean formal religious institutions like you know, uh, temples, churches, synagogues, mosques, or um, informal organizations that are more so like policy representations of what our faiths claim to stand for, uh, tend to have a very conservative representation. Um, and so what it often lends itself to questions for us is, do I need to abandon my faith? Do I need to become an atheist or an agnostic in order to be in my socialist values? Um, and what Sadhana really has provided for and what we seek to continue to provide for is like a, both a practical as well as a theological response to the representations of Hinduism, which are becoming um, increasingly manipulated and depicted in order to show what is directly oppositional um, and to uh and you know in, indigenous to india even though the, these are really rewritings of history not that i'm qualified to speak on um the histories itself um but more so about how theology is so important to the way that we relate to our faith and how our faith institutions represent whom our religions are for and how it's to be practiced and how it's not to be practiced. The other kind of piece I wanted to highlight is that, you know, I, I mentioned, this was mentioned in my bio, but I identify as a South Asian um, racial justice organizer first. And I think that there is no conversation that can be had for our communities about racial justice without talking about faith, um, because our communities have always been shaped by 
like the the beauty that comes out of having so many faith traditions. Um, and even with this upcoming uh, fight in Congress for Diwali to be celebrated, Diwali to be celebrated as a school holiday, we I think all of us hope that it promotes not only for Diwali to be recognized, but also for other celebrations like Vaisakhi, like. There's a wonderful faith uh, faith tradition in Jainism where they fast for eight days as a means of reflecting on what you have and what you, and not not too dissimilar to Passover, um, and amongst many others that we want we want to show that um, again as we have this notion of faith being mobilized to restrict and being an affirmative practice, especially as Haritha also mentioned in our judicial institutions, we really have to be careful about the fact that um, people are using their religious uh, rights as a means of curtailing others. And so what does it mean for us to use our religion, again, in the legal complex, to actually demonstrate how that should be giving us more opportunities and freedom? So I think the last kind of thing I wanted to touch on is like an interesting example of that. Sadhana recently has um, joined the Planned Parenthood Interfaith Coalition, um, and we're really becoming a part We've now signed three amicus briefs, um, which would promote reproductive freedom. One was for a case in Florida. One was for a case, I think, in Georgia, alongside Sister Song, or to support Sister Song. And one was recently in Indiana. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case about fetal tissue disposal in Indiana. And so it remains to be seen how that sort of uh, replays out. Um, but we have we are proud to be alongside organizations like Catholics for Choice and like the National Council of Jewish Women, amongst many other um, progressive rabbinical groups, um, Muslim groups and uh, Christian groups to demonstrate that we are conscientious about how people are trying to talk about us without us. Um, and so I'll kind of end briefly there. Just actually, you know, I'll touch on one last thing. Something that I just kind of wanted to highlight was when I talk about when I talked about um, the necessity of interfaith organizing for racial justice, I think it's incredibly important to remember that for those of us who grew up after 9-11, uh, we have really come to understand that the color of our skin has always mattered more um, than uh, what faith we may practice because there are assumptions being made on that. And so I think it's incredibly salient um, as we enter like this you know, certainly our upcoming June primaries and, you know, our election cycle this year, but more importantly, our presidential election next year, that we are mindful about how communities can be divided uh, by these foreign policy issues. But what does it mean for us, um, you know, as affiliates of DSA to be intentional about how faith is going to be a part of the conversations we have to overcome as we try to rally people to show up? Wow, yeah. Thank you, Shivani. That was beautifully put. Um, and I think something that is so like central to some of the questions that we're really trying to get at within religious socialism itself. Um, so what a beautiful way to, to tie that tie that all up. But um, thanks both of you. I guess I was wondering if we could talk um, just a little bit more about the relationship between Hindutva and caste. And I was wondering if either or both of you might be able to just tell us a little bit more about efforts nationally to make caste an explicitly protected category, like SB 403, California's anti-caste discrimination bill. Um, because it seems to me that one of the ways in which Hindutva succeeds in infiltrating, or at least going unchallenged among even like white liberals in America as through unnuanced or even blatantly false charges of racism. Like the Hindu American Foundation's director published an op-ed in a major U.S. newspaper charging that laws in place to target caste discrimination are racist because only one race can practice, can practice casteism. So how should progressives like respond to these sort of claims? I would say I think the biggest thing is 
it's it's kind of complicated, you see, because it's not it's not that only Hindus have a caste system. The caste systems of South Asia are similar, but they're not explicit to just one faith. It's just that most people are familiar with the Hindu caste system because I feel like if you especially if you grew up going to school here in the US, that's one that you hear about the most. And I think that a lot of the times, especially in this fight against caste discrimination, this fight too, for those of you not familiar, um, in Seattle, they passed an ordinance essentially to add caste as a protected category. And we're doing the same thing in California, trying to get caste be denoted, I guess, or as part of the Fair Housing and Civil Rights Act. Um, And so, so far it's passed the state Senate. It was like 39 to one or something. So like almost unanimous. And then uh, now the fight goes to the state assembly. It's just to make caste a protected category. And the argument that a lot of the times the Hindu right will employ is that because they say two things, they say caste, like Hinduism is not casteist. There's no, caste was a colonial creation. It was something that came out of uh, British rule over India. And that's why it's a formalized system. And that it's not in like an inherent part of Hinduism. But then they say at the same time, by talking about caste, because as you said, Nicole, that like if only one race can have caste, then like then trying to make caste a protected category is racist. Um, it's kind of a hard thing to work your way around. So my simple, silly answer to that is like, okay, so which is it? Is caste a part of Hinduism or is it not? Um, and there's never really an answer for that. But our perspective is that like, you should, that there people experience caste discrimination in the U.S., whether that's through a prejudice or other, per, you know, forms of discrimination or just perception, whatever they're experiencing, that those are valid experiences and they shouldn't be experiencing those things. So caste should be a, pro, a category, a protected category. But this, yeah, this notion that it would be racist or discriminatory to Indians or Hindus or all South, now they're using the language of, finally, they're using the language of all South Asians because they've moved beyond the fact that just Hindus, um, that there is a caste system in Hinduism. So it's it's kind of complicated. I think, I don't know, Shivani, if you have anything else to add to that, but it's it's gotten, it's it's muddy, but for us, it's just trying to make sure that people understand that like we are not trying to discriminate against people. We're trying to prevent discrimination and that this this notion that talking about caste or trying to ban caste discrimination is Hindu phobic or anti Hindu is quite uh, quite silly. I can leave it at that. Yeah, I, I'm only going to bring up two points. Uh, one is that I did uh, put in the chat uh, the South Asian Bar Association of North America came out with a statement in support of the passing, which it did pass, um, an ordinance in Seattle uh, which pr- provides for the protection of uh, protection from discrimination under the basis of caste. And I raise it to show that the South Asian legal community, particularly you know those of us who are currently in law school and coming out of law school within the past 10 years are beginning to try to educate ourselves on um, how caste employment discrimination works um, because we see it as a as a possibility that there will be far more lawsuits in the coming future, especially as certain industries have a larger representation of people from upper caste backgrounds. And so uh, how such discrimination may manifest, it's important to be able to have the correct rhetoric to do so. Um, the other comment I would make is that I think Harita alluded to like a Republican Hindu uh, coalition of sorts. Yeah. And so what's concerning is that because it has been Democratic South Asian lawmakers, um, or rather, let's just say Democratic lawmakers, uh, for the most part, who have been advancing these bills for the advancement of caste 
discrimination protections. Uh, it has been pushing people who may be otherwise socially liberal more firmly into the Republican camp. Um, and I think a more general statement that I think is interesting to hear to to recognize is that on the, on the by the same token, of course, as we we've also acknowledged that there are Democratic lawmakers who are um, you know inviting. Indian leadership uh, who represent the BJP to the United States in a very supportive and affirmative way. So these leave a lot of ambiguous and unaddressed questions, given that uh, we all recognize that fascism is fascism, um, but the ways in which you know the two parties that we have here are responding to the current Indian a regime has less to do with India and more to do with its positionality in Asia in response to, for example, uh, China concerns about um, the Afghan refugee crisis, a historic, uh, few, historically fewer bilateral relations with Bangladesh and Pakistan, and of course India's market size um, and the size of their diaspora, as well as spending capacity in the United States. So these are all just things that we have to consider when we talk about the BJP, because in many ways, in terms of the U.S. response to the BJP functionally just has more to do with its own geopolitical interests in the region. Yeah, that's um, that's actually a great transition into one of the other questions from Krista Chan, I guess picking up from where, where you ended, Shivani, on what, what are some of the broader, you know, geopolitical trends which are driving uh, the BJP to start developing these relationships with U.S. political parties? Yeah, I can I can start with that. Yeah, I would say, kind of, I mean, Shivani touched on it a little bit. It's these like U.S. lawmakers and the U.S. government amidst calls from places like Freedom House, other think tanks, the USERF, which is the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, um, even the State Department itself, their Office for International Religious Freedom, despite the warnings from these big academic and other respected um, bodies that like the decline of Indian democracy and decline of religious freedoms in India is concerning and dangerous, the U.S. is still functioning kind of I would say because we are in the decline of neoliberalism, like what that era looks like is going to be very challenging, but it's still very much a like strategic partnership between US, the US and India in order for India to serve as a buffer to China. And China and Pakistan have a relationship. India doesn't like China. Those are kind of the main things. I'll also say India's kind of apathy towards the war in Ukraine, its support of Russia by so much Russian oil and how that, I guess, relationship plays into it as well. There's a lot of, it's just kind of, they're sticking to the, to the narrative that this is an important strategic relationship for the U.S. to maintain in order to kind of serve as a buffer to China and to make sure that they, sometimes I feel like they frame it in a way like, oh, we're just trying to keep, you know, our friends close, but enemies closer perhaps. Um, but India has never really been an enemy. It's always been a friend. Um, and now as it slips into this democratic backsliding, it's becoming more clear to advocacy groups and pretty much anyone that is aware of religious freedoms and other rights in India that it's concerning. But for the government, it's still very much a geopolitical thing of like, we need to make sure that we have the strategic relationship in order to prevent what could else, what, what else could happen. I'm not like a super, super, super tuned in, I guess, to a lot of the other geopolitics involved, but I know there's definitely, you know, something there with like the China, with China and the BRI and getting into more of those economic development and I guess, 
yeah, that kind of that kind of stuff. But it's very much still like, oh, we need a strategic relationship with India in order to keep the peace, kind of. And a lot of that stuff is not being talked about, but there's a lot of praise from American officials of like, oh, Modi is a strong leader. He's, you know, doing really well for the country, for the economy, all these things, but they're ignoring all the other stuff that's happening that is much more, I'd say, salient to the discussion. But obviously they're they're keeping it to the strategy um, label of why they're maintaining this relationship without really any heavy-handedness around human rights or anything not that the U.S. has always been great on human rights but that's kind of the big thing. I just thought I would add two points uh one is like on the topic on the subject of human rights um I would encourage people to look up the India's relationship with the UN um and just sort of the Indian response to the question of human rights um it's it's I, I don't pretend to be an expert but what I would say as a simplistic kind of place to start is that there's like a rightful critique to an extent of how the West, how most Western countries are the uh, creators of, of what this universal human rights position is meant to look like. Um, now, the, the outcome of that is a denial of human rights issues. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's certainly not a reconcilable tension, but there it is. Uh, the other thing I think to under, that's under critical to understanding, I think the, I would say the average lay person, the average lay Hindu in India is considering that uh, India had one party that was in leadership for from the time of independence up until the BJP, which was the Congress party. And so the challenge with the rise of B- BJP is that the alternative is not a well-respected alternative. Um, and the last kind of other important thing to know as you continue to dig into uh, maybe just a very one-on-one of like post-independence history of India is that Indira Gandhi is not related to Mahatma Gandhi, but rather she's the daughter of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, and she married an individual whose surname was Gandhi. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that, um, both of you. And I think, I think like if we were to do, if we were to have a conversation on the organized left in India and it's failures that would be a whole other maybe series of webinars yeah that could be its own thing <laughs> yeah absolutely but i will say to that point like i don't think that it's fair for us to kind of sit here like that's kind of the criticism Facebook, that we get a lot of Twitter, is like Instagram. that's usually the pushback of people in website. india being like oh like you westerners you're sitting in 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 the west in the u.s and talking about what we should do with our country and blah 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 and all this stuff but they for me, it's still confusing because I'm like, you're forgetting the roots of this country, the root of like the reason that the secular democratic independence movement is the one that won, I guess, won over most of the people is because because of those very, you know, um, tenets of like of, of a pluralistic society as opposed to one, you know, Hindu Rashtra is what they what they want, uh, one Hindu nation. But there's a lot of People on the ground, and it's it's not that people on the ground in India are apathetic to this. It's very just so it's very confusing and very muddled. And a lot of people seem to think they have the answers, but a lot more people seem to be throwing up their hands and being like, we don't know what to do. But we don't, we can't just we definitely can't discount the efforts of people on the ground. Um, for example, like in the state of Karnataka, just few weeks ago there was an election and the congress party won over the bjp and it was a big kind of landslide election and it kind of proved that 
the hateful rhetoric and the actions of the BJP, like even though they've staked, like they're staking a claim, like in majority of the country, it's not going to win over everywhere. And it's really these grassroots movements that are fighting back. Um, even though, as Shivani said, <laughs> the alternative of the Congress Party also hasn't been great, but at least they're not Hindu nationalists <laughs> is kind of where I'm going with that. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Nicole, like for your no, next question. No, that's that's a really um, important reminder, I think. And also like what you were saying just reminds me of how interesting and sort of ironic it is the way that the language of like human rights and the sort of um, buying into ideals of like secularism and democracy are so selectively deployed you know by the hindu right um specifically i think like i think kashmir is a really great example that exemplifies a lot of these tensions where yeah like the failure to really consider the right to self-determination and the democratic will of kashmiri people becomes is like completely erased in the way that like nationalist infiltration and like sort of misinformation gets spread Earlier, there was some discussion on other Indian religions, like Buddhism and Jainism, and how they relate to this issue. Could you speak a little more on what Hindu nationalists tend to believe about these religions and their practitioners? Great, loaded question. Um, I'm happy to give a first attempt um, at this. So it it definitely is specific to religion, uh, to religion, and yet there are also other complexities. So um, the Hindutva narrative asserts that Sikhism and Jainism are branches of Hinduism. Um, and what and each of those uh, the practitioners of those faiths who are part of political movements have different responses. Um, so the first thing to understand is that you know Jainism at, at, at large and Sikhism at large reject that. Um, of course they recognize that you know that there's some relationship and that they exist in this like dharmic community um but they do see themselves as they rightfully should as independent uh faith systems and beliefs the thing that's complicated about um or perhaps ironic about the appropriation of sikhism by hindus in this sort of time is that uh, there is also a huge suppression of Sikh activists in India, um, which I won't speak to at length because I'm not qualified to, but I would encourage people to um, engage with the Sikh Coalition or um, SALDEF, the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund, to learn more about um, how Sikh Americans have been mobilized to not only support the farmers' protests, um, but how that has a relationship uh, with their faith and with um, historical issues rooting in the 1984 uh, Sikh genocide attempt. Um, the question of Hinduism and Jainism is also a bit fraught um, in the sense that while Jainism, one of its core tenets is also anti-casteism, nonetheless, most Jain people heritage-wise tend to have been of the Vaishya caste. Um, and because there has been a clearly articulated place for Jains in this Hindu Rashtra leadership, um, most Jains have not necessarily come out to feel that um, a Hindu leadership for the country would necessarily be a bad thing. Um, and of course, there's a significant presence of Christianity in India, um, which is experiencing repression, though that's mostly in South India, where more of where more uh, there is a greater Christian uh, presence. The other thing to, that I'm just going to thread throughout here is that one of the big goals, one of the significant goals of the Hindu Rashtra is to normalize Hindi as the language of India. And this runs against the strong uh, Dravidian tradition and breadth and depth of just so many different languages, vernaculars, cultures that we that India has and subsequently thus the diaspora has. 
Um, and then of course I, um, it's perhaps a foregone conclusion that everyone understands um, in how the uh, Hindu leadership feels about Islam, um, which is largely also tied to um, the presence of Mughals in the country and geopolitical tense relations with uh, Pakistan in particular, but of course, um, neighboring Bangladesh with various um, resource and refugee-based challenges and crises as well. Um, the last thing I would just touch on is that the extent to which diasporans really engage or feel connected to those like theological debates as well as like identity-based debates, I think just depends so much on uh, class and geography and where you went to college, um, how many people you grew up with. And so I, I only me mentioned that to say that I wouldn't necessarily make any assumptions about anyone's uh, political relationship to like their faith, India, their South Asian-ness, um, just because it, it actually can be really challenging to, to clock that on anyone until you have the conversation with them. Yeah, that's a very important last point I'll echo. Um, especially for me, like like I said earlier, I'm a graduate student. I graduated undergrad last year, so I've kind of been seeped in how um, this politics plays out on college campuses. And like more often than not, most people either don't know anything <laughs> about these these important uh, topics or they are learning or unlearning whatever they are working on. Um, so it's definitely not like the large population of like college students, for example, that are just like very pro-Hindu nationalist agendas and things, but it's very much, that's kind of been a challenging in, in organizing our communities is the education portion, especially as a lot of people come from very different backgrounds, whether those are language backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and it's it's very complicated to kind of associate or try to make large claims and generalizations about people for sure. You know, Larry has a great question that kind of, I guess, ties into some of the themes about the relationship between um, like religious fundamentalism and I guess like secularism um, in Hinduism. And his question is, um, who benefits from interfaith rivalry and competition? How many agitators really have not interest in the theology? And Larry says that they're thinking now of Christian nationalism. So I wonder, um, kind of tying into this, you know, diversity of different like and geographical and, and and class and even caste differences and how people practice Hinduism. Um, I guess, how do we reckon with all these differences um, as well as um, trying to understand the relationship between like secularism and like the actual religiosity of this philosophy? Yeah, I think somebody made a point also in here that a lot of this has to do with kind of like trying to, I don't know what the word is, but like, make hinduism like more ethnic like talk about it as like an ethno religion um which i'm not super qualified to speak on i've only done a little bit of research on that but that is kind of a big part of it is like trying focusing less on like the religious teachings maybe it depends on who you're talking to but kind of framing hinduism and hindutva as like an ethno nationalist force and that regaining that strong Hinduness, but making it something that is much deeper than like a religion that somebody practices, making it their ethnicity, their entire identity. Um, and I think that's kind of what complicates it a lot, especially if you want to talk about like secularism and how that is kind of impacting it as well. I think I always, my usual answer for who benefits from this division and this rivalry is always like, Usually I'll just be very cavalier, be like, oh, it's white people. But in this instance, it's it's kind of hard to say who, because it is like such an internal divide. But I can say who's being harmed by the division is 
all of India's ethnic and religious minorities, and that those narratives and those dynamics are definitely playing over into the diaspora with a lot of, you know, Islamophobia and caste discrimination. A lot of these things are still carried over. Um, and that's, that's its own discussion, of course, of like, how do we combat that without playing into the stereotypes or the tropes that like, or the harm, the harmful things that like, oh, like people are bringing their differences and divisions. It's like, there's a way to acknowledge that while also like not furthering um, hatred or discrimination itself. But yeah, Shwani, do you have anything to add to that? I think what what is again ironic is that um, in terms of like the the to talk about the theological premises in Hinduism is inherently complicated because like you know the, there's ostensibly like you know six major schools of thought um, but then I couldn't even name them to you as a practicing Hindu uh, you know we do have we have many books on literature the extent to which people read them varies um, you know people there are people who I think go to prayer and um, temple more frequently and fast frequently. Um, I tend to get headaches, so I avoid fasting and I don't find it necessary as a part of my faith practice. Um, however, I grew up in a Hindu Sunday school program, which I th- I felt gave me a lot of framework for the values that are important to me. And so I think that's what's actually, if anything, challenging is because what really uh, is also trying to be achieved is this historicization and normalization of um, Hindu lore as fact. Um, and so that really also in changing and rewriting um, the history of India to fit this uh, puritanical Hindu narrative and the erasure of the contributions of other faith groups or only as is, you know, um, permissible simply because it's too undeniable is is really becoming something that that is dangerous as textbooks are being rewritten there um, and as young people are being distanced from parents and grandparents who would give them an alternative understanding of the country that they're living in today. I just felt like there was one other question that was really, was really great, or some comment that I wanted to highlight. Um, I wanted to highlight the comment that just said, uh, yeah, the shorter answer about upper caste, especially Brahmin folks. I definitely think so. I think also one of the huge challenges that we need to find a way to overcome is the fact that Uh, caste continues to be framed as a Brahmin and Dalit binary, um, which is not useful in the sense that there are, you know, three other Savarna or upper castes, which are uh, Kshatriyas or the ostensibly warrior caste, um, Vaishyas or the merchant caste, and Shudras or the uh, laboring caste, um, in addition to people who are of, you know, Adivasi or uh, tribal heritage backgrounds, um, and no doubt many other uh, particular distinguished smaller groups, which are um, explicitly written out in the Indian constitution, which I'm not an expert at. But it, it it becomes a bit difficult when we talk about caste in the diaspora then, because you don't feel like you have a stake in the conversation if you are not Dalit or Brahmin. And so when we don't have a lot of literature and places to have these conversations openly in the ways that they affect us and in the ways that they're permeating US politics, um, it leaves us at a bit of a standstill. Vedika has a question. There is an increasing silence of voices coming from India through external or self-censorship, fake news, and um, Godi media, resulting in louder Hindu representation. In that light, for the diaspora communities, how can we challenge the popular narrative on a day-to-day basis? Um, I love this question because of how much it ties into like all of the social media issues, like the the WhatsApp universities and um, like just deluge of fake information that spreads virally online through um, Hindutva misinformation factories. But I'll let both of you get into this. Yeah, I thought I would just go first from like a mental health perspective. Um, you know, 
like I'm 25 years old, uh, you really have to be picking your battles. Um, because I think that if you are not in those WhatsApp groups, and God forbid, actually, if you are in those WhatsApp groups, um, you know, do you have the time to debate every single issue? Do you, uh, when you're also operating from the premise as somebody who's automatically less credible because you're a diaspora young person speaking, um, someone who, you know, by virtue of not having quote unquote grown up in India doesn't have the premise to be able to debate, you know, that really bizarre right wing argument of like, you know, this, there's the erasure of Hindu culture and you're saying this to people who are like the majority of religion in that country. Not too dissimilar to how um, those who feel that like white victimhood um, is like a justification for the advent of um, libertarianism and fascism here. So that's kind of like one category of the other of the thing. The other thing is what I think is really challenging as a diasporan is um, this idea that, you know, you're a self-hating Hindu or a self-hating Indian American who is Hindu um, if you don't get behind this Hindutva project. Um, and so, again, when you try to debate these WhatsApp university uh, co-signing individuals, you know, they are going to try to, you know, silence you by virtue of, again, a twisted waiver and non-authenticity. And so when I say mental health, I kind of mean that there are ways, I think, to engage in this issue effectively directly without necessarily wasting precious time and energy with those who are immovable. Um, when we talk about the material outcomes of this ideology, it's about how we talk about our faith. It's about how other young people engage with their identities. And that's a place where you have some ability to have an equitable discussion and, and leverage. It's about engaging with our U.S. domestic politicians about how they respond to this BJP leadership. Those are things that I think are within our control because we simply cannot control how this disinformation is being propagated and spread um, invariably and like affirmatively by people who are excited by the idea that even if they don't have quote unquote power by being a racial minority here, that I, at least in the homeland, I do still have some sense of power. I think that was very beautifully said, Giovanni. I feel like I don't have much to add, but I think for me, from like a very online perspective, um, seeing as Nicole was saying, like the deluge of just like the vitriolic hate and oftentimes very gross and violent and misogynistic and Islamophobic hatred that is online. And I know Nicole, we're going to talk about this a little bit, maybe, or maybe it will just naturally lead into kind of the like very like digital component of it of WhatsApp and Twitter and just the amount of hatred that's spread online. I think, yeah, as Shivani said, rightfully, like, protect your peace. And as much as you can, don't try to engage with people that you don't think you'll be able to move or convince. But I'd say that that's the same with, like, any of these issues, whether that's, like, racial justice or anything. Like, it's much, if you are willing and able to have those conversations with people that you know are going to be difficult to move, be, you know, go for it, do it, Godspeed. But it's much more, I think strategic or effective to talk to people that you know will think critically I think there's a lack of just like critical thinking on this um and a lack of acceptance it's kind of like we're trying to unlearn a lot of things and learn again um correctly I think also like just supporting people who are doing the work whether that's, I'm going to do a little plug for <laughs> Sadhana and for Hindus for Human Rights, supporting our work um, on the ground, whether that's within community building and things like that, or standing against like actual policy measures and things that are harming communities and also just enabling Hindutva to spread in the U.S. as well. I think from, if any of you are in academia, figuring out, you know, how you can get involved from that perspective of 
supporting students that are fighting against caste discrimination or fighting against um, Hindutva money coming in to support student organizations that are kind of aligned with that. So oftentimes, unknowingly, we've had a process of actually having many college students come to us and be like, oh, I, I've seen your stuff. I know that like some of the, like the Hindu Students Council chapter on my campus is being funded by a Hindutva group. What can we do? How do we disaffiliate? You know, things like that. And it's actually been quite successful. So really finding kind of wherever you can plug into this to this fight um, and doing that work, whether that's, you know, supporting us or supporting people directly on the ground in India. Um, I think there's lots of ways to get involved, but it's obviously or challenging your family members in your WhatsApp group. Like that, that's a brave challenge in, in and of itself. So I'd say just being aware and also pushing more left and progressive spaces to be staunchly anti-Hindutva, um, anti-fascist, obviously, just as we are anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-capitalist, um, kind of putting that into the the, the labels or whatever you want into the ideology as well, I think will be really helpful to kind of spread this. Cause my, my like dream vision is like getting like every progressive left group to be anti-Hindutva and to come out. And like right now, like we're kind of prepping for this Modi visit, like getting groups to speak out about why it's not good for why, why it's kind of insulting for Modi to be invited to a state dinner, why it's insulting for members of Congress to try and invite him for a joint session of Congress and kind of platforming him. Um, so lots of things like that as well. This is just an introduction to some of these really urgent questions. And um, we're so grateful for your time, Shivani and Harita. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your extensive knowledge and all of your wisdom and your time. Um, and thank you to everyone else for being here with us today as well. It's wonderful to, to have so many of you. And um, hopefully we'll be able to have more conversations on this really important issue. Thanks for your support and your interest in this. I think. I feel like we function in silos a lot of the time and it's really refreshing to kind of talk to a group of people that come from diverse backgrounds and faith backgrounds, especially because I feel like people forget the roots of like organizing are often rooted in faith movements, um, especially in the US. So I'm really excited to have had this opportunity. So thank you all. Yeah, I would only say the same. Um, and more broadly, like the importance of us as I think the the generation that is coming into a place where we'll be the decision makers and steers of how our democracy continues hopefully to evolve and be protected, um, that we have an obligation in our commitment to internationalism to be really savvy and wary of uh, what we're in alignment with and what we stand against. Beautiful. Thank you so much, both of you, and bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to check out theologybeer.camp and use the promo code HEARTGODPOD. Solidarity, everybody. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org.